Welcome to Dwarf Fortress Roundtable, the podcast for all things dwarfy. Every couple weeks or so, your hosts gather to talk about our favorite game, Dwarf Fortress. So let's join your hosts, Roland. That is so American, I disagree. Tony. Hey, there might be an opportunity here. There's people that don't like 5G. And Jonathan. Well, the corduroy isn't why I would be cutting it. As they present insightful, irreverent, and often incorrect analysis. This week, TechEd stops by. Yeah, how does that work anyway? You'd think that something with more thickness to it would be more durable and last longer, but... To discuss advanced world generation, a topic suggested by listener Brian Johnson. And always remember, losing is fun. So I guess everyone hears that we have TechEd back with us today. Welcome, TechEd. Hello. Glad to be back. It's been a while. Yes, it's been a while for us. Mm Mm-hmm. We didn't even mention this in our last episode. We only planned to be gone for about two months, and it ended up stretching to almost four. So Sometimes. Stuff happens. It's hard to say goodbye and hello again sometimes. (laughs) How was your vacation, your hiatus? Good. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice. Raise your hand if you got COVID. Uh, No, actually. I I ended up getting it, going to the most hostile COVID place in the world. So, uh, Florida? Britain. Britain. Oh. <laughs> very hostile, very much Florida protocols in play over there. Yeah, I, uh, I've i been on a very long hiatus myself from my channel. Not really a hiatus. I'm still kind of every now and then tinkering with things. I'm trying to learn some art, you know, that's going to come back and play into it. But I myself have also been on a bit of a break. Summer months are busy at work and I've been on something of a journey. So life is life. Well, I'm really glad that you dropped those military... Oh, uh, videos yes. before you before you went on the hiatus because those were awesome. Yeah, thank you, my 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 dwarves. Thank you. Uh, you you've saved many a uh, many a fortress. Are so they shooting sure. bolts? Everybody everybody got their dwarves using their crossbows. Yes. Well, yep. yeah. Until yep. until somebody ran out of arrows and threw the quiver. And that mm. kind of sucked. Wait, but, threw the quiver? Yeah. <laughs> oh no! You're not supposed to do that. Well, they weren't using it anymore. Well, so. I know exactly. It's like, well, I'm in a life or death situation here, and I, the quiver is expendable. The so solution that, is right. to just give them quivers made out of deadly material. That's right, yeah. out of corduroy, adamantine corduroy. Yeah. Make sure to fray it a little bit. It'd be like a cactus, you know? It'd stab you real, real small threads, and it hurt for like eight hours, and you wouldn't know where it is. Aren't you supposed to be mindlessly reaching into it, though, when you're firing arrows? No, that's like, true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, I didn't say it was a fair fort. Well, just recently I discovered that my dwarves, and I'm sure everybody's dwarves, uh, they like to wear so much clothing that I'm sure they would be well protected. They almost always are wearing mittens over gloves, no matter the mm. temperature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. And I thought for a while it would protect them from freezing, but I don't think there is like temperature that does that like there is temperature i'm i'm aware i'm just saying that i never saw a dwarf freeze when he was like on a glacier chopping wood or something it decreases the armor class by one right yeah <laughs> is yeah. that right no, no oh it no. sounded darn authoritative sounded like you knew what you were talking What'd about what did you say there nathan <laughs> <laughs> I was just uh, I was just going to say temperature is like somehow extremely impotent in Dwarf Fortress. It doesn't matter. You know, it's weird how much heat your dwarves can put up with and uh, how much cold they can put up with. 
You know what? That's because the developers are in the Pacific Northwest and they don't really have the same kind of weather that other oh, parts true. of the world have. So they like, themselves have adapted. They have. Like, <laughs> what's the difference between winter and summer in Seattle? A little sun? One place it does matter is that your water freezes and your yes. dwarves can't drink if you accidentally let them run out of alcohol, yeah. which I, doesn't happen to me anymore because I implemented the Tekken approved method of running your, your workshops via work orders rather than just telling them to build crap. That has changed my fortress management and organization completely. So you're not uh, you're not stockpiling tens of thousands of units of things and then wearing your dwarves down emotionally and physically in order to reduce those stockpiles to dangerously low zeros. Well, I still run a capitalist fort. <laughs> Come on, this is like this is a source of capitalism here. Of course, that's what I'm doing, but I'm doing it in a more efficient way. No. <laughs> I do still have my uh, craft dwarves building rock crafts with a repeat on, but that's just so that they can shove all that crap off on the elves whenever or and the oh, yeah. caravan server they come in. But other than that, no, yeah. I didn't get the food part right. You're really clear in how you described how all that stuff worked, and then somehow some part of the intricate weave of all of the things failed and I would either never make enough food and people would starve to death or they would have too much crap food and I, anyway I made a bit of a dog's dinner of it and uh, I got I got to get back there and try that again food it just has to be right on a few different levels cuz first you have to be farming some things that won't get used for drinks and then you need to know that you're farming enough of those things and they won't get used for drinks because you can't share everything between your food and drink or else the dwarves will end up making too many drinks out of it or something. Then you have to have your work order set up for having the proper amount of meals getting made, which that has some math involved because you're making stacks out of stacks. You're not just making one for one. So, well, it is one for one. In terms of the amount of food, making the amount of meals, but your dwarf isn't making one meal per order. So yeah, like you kind of have to do a little bit of math and you have to just make sure you have your resource, um, your farming or whatever resource it is, fishing or something set up to provide enough and it's not getting used elsewhere and i don't know it's easy to find like one place where you just didn't set something up right i think that's a really good part right there which is something that i didn't think about and it's probably why the the whole the whole scheme fell apart yep i think they were just kind of going for it with whatever they had so it just may be coincidence but i think that the the proper management of your workshops also indirectly leads you to have a more populated fortress in that and again, it may be coincidence, but I've done, I think, three fortresses now where I used the workshop management uh, work orders or workshop management by work orders. And I don't know if the dwarves are spending more time in the in the, uh, the the taverns or what's going on, but my migration waves seem to be much larger now than they were before. I don't know if it's coincidence, mm-hmm. but I think that I have my dwarves have more idle time. I wouldn't be surprised because so. my forts, I've been doing the management that I described in my videos for a long time now and for probably a dozen forts before I made those videos. And so I notice my forts are populated extremely quickly. And I think it's just because yeah. you don't realize because when you set up those those management systems, you don't realize that even though each management system is working slower than it would if you just ham-fisted it and said repeat job, 
uh, once you get like three or four industries working on their own, they're outperforming what you would be telling your dwarves to do micromanagement ways. So, you know, you could tell your dwarves to make a lot of stuff at once, but having five systems up, like a system for food, a system for drinks, a system for crafts, a system for stone blocks and furniture, a system for Mm -hmm. metal, for pots and things, um, and all those things constantly working, I'm pretty sure... I would, I would guess it's your wealth just going up way faster because your whole fortress is sort of constantly generating this ba- background wealth. Well, welcome to Wall Street Week. We are talking today <laughs> about just-in-time manufacturing as it applies to Dwarf Fortress. Has inflation hit your fort? Yes, absolutely. It's now eight trinkets per caged animal with the elves. It's crazy. Hey, on that demo video that, that Zach and Tarn did, I saw some people asking in comment places, hey, is the economy back? What caused that question to be asked? I didn't see anything in that video that would lead me to believe that the economy would have changed from what it is now. Oh, I, I can tell you. Oh, Go ahead. Okay. When he was making the fortress, when he was embarking, and mm-hmm. um, there was a new setting type screen where you can say, like, I want invaders, I want this. And um, there was a button between normal and hard economy, uh, or like hard economy or whatever. And everybody was like, wait, economy, economy, hard economy, what? That led to the question of whether or not economy is back. But I feel like hard economy will just reduce the price of trinkets and such. Well, I would like to see that happen, where if if you flood the market with with marble rings, that the price of marble rings goes down. Yeah, that would be that pretty would be cool. great to see. Yeah, that sounds hard, though. As much as uh, yeah. as it would be really cool to see, I'm going to guess that they just used economy as the word to describe how the hard, easy, and whatever settings uh, scale world events and raids and stuff with your fortress as well. Because that's something yeah, they've yeah. said they're going to do. They're going to change. Uh, they're going to have mm. difficulty modes or editable difficulty that adjusts how the world interacts with your wealth levels. Yeah, mm, that sounds I right. See. So probably like you need less wealth to trigger attacks from goblins or whatever. Yeah, yeah, or much uh, more. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, interesting. Oh, uh, okay. Mr. Gutsy would like to announce the grand opening of the Chestnut of Whips, the new tavern located on the fourth level of Ivory Channels. Come here, Ost Faint Lashes tell the story of the dwarf Asen Cudgel Rever's ascension to Queen of the Gleeful Seals. Visit the Chestnut of Whips, Ivory Channels first and only tavern. Tell them Mr. Gutsy sent you. I'm very excited to see once this is all in place, I'm excited to see what other kind of events they can put into the game that will perhaps even an economy-based thing uh, that will change not just when the world interacts with your fort, but how. Because at the moment, Dwarf Fortress has a lot of stuff going on and there's a lot of stuff you can do, but every single fort, well, not every single fort, if you go onto an ice sheet, you have different circumstances or an evil biome, you have different circumstances, but every fort outside of those exceptional cases has the same needs to do things it's the same list you know like oh you get mm-hmm. to the caverns now you got forgotten beasts you get to a certain wealth point now you got goblins oh and a werebeast showed up 
you know, so you just you can be easily prepared. But in the future, if they did Im- implement some some kind of economy or geopolitics or something, and then other things can happen, like maybe a different fortress, a different civilization shows up and says, we're claiming this land from your civilization. You're under attack and we're going to basically steal your land and usurp this place. And then, you know, that's like, that's cool. That's something that didn't happen last fort. And it's not going to happen next fort either, probably. Mm-hmm. But it's going to happen this fort. That'd be interesting to see. I mean, that's just obviously a blind idea that I'm spitting out there. But yeah, well, I know that I've reached the point after three migration waves now that I've got to worry about uh, about attacks because my population has grown over that. What is it? Uh, 60? Where they pretty mm-hmm. much won't attack you until you have sixty uh, uh, citizens. Did you ever get a migration wave over twenty-two? Holy smacks! I've gotten close. I don't know. I've gotten I feel like close. Twenty-two is about where that's the highest number I recall reading, and I recall reading it multiple times. So I'm wondering if that's a hard limit. Hmm. Okay. I will keep an eye out for that. Yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. But yeah, I get those often. The twenty-two migration waves, probably because I immediately start processing all of my stone i know a lot of people use the hide function to just hide boulders i don't do that i immediately start making blocks doors furniture that i'm going to use to clear up the stone and just get it out of there and so pretty much as soon as i break ground i'm crafting my mason is full-time crafting and i think that plus drinks uh plus um just some other things like the barrels that I need and stuff like that probably boosts my wealth enough that my first few migration waves can hit big numbers. I don't hide boulders because it's a kind of a trigger to help me know when it's time for me to start looking at mining again. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I will set up stockpiles and, and have those stockpiles near my people who use the, the, the stone. But whenever uh, my lower levels are starting to clear up of stone, then, you know, it's time to, to do some more exploratory mining. I find myself really content without doing too much mining. I have like a metal mine, you know, that I'll, I'll use to mine metals. But for the most part, I find a way to build my entire fortress out of the resources that fall from carving out that the fortress. I just... Yeah, I like know. pretty colors of furniture. You know, I want to I want to find the... The, the red and the blue and the greens for my, for my furniture. Oh, yeah. You got to go mining for those. Yeah. Yeah. I I have to be honest here. I just set my mineral amount to, to like the, the highest. So I don't have to dig a lot. And I still get a lot of stuff. And I don't really do it for the metals. If I had a, a table where I can uh, make a difference between the amount of metals I can find and the amount of gems I could find. I would just crank up the gems because I love gems. Mm. And now I have like, I don't know, 800 something steel bars. I don't know what to do with that, but I don't have any gems anymore because they're all gone already. They're everywhere. On my, Isn't my... that funny? Hmm? Isn't it funny that the difference between what people really enjoy about the game, I can care <laughs> less about gems. Gems to me are just something that you decorate rings with before you sell them. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. But, you know, in my head, I always see uh, the the item. And if I then go into my tavern, which obviously has to has uh, the, the best tables, the best chairs, the best thrones, the best 
uh, furniture that was produced. And then on top of that good furniture, I need the best amount of um, decoration, which is bones plus metal plus gemstones. And it has to be on there. Otherwise, the thing will not go into the tavern. And it makes me happy if I see it in the tavern. I'm like, it has metals and bones and gemstones. And then I can look up what the gemstone is like. And I'm like, you know, it, it's cool. I, I really like gemstones. Well, even rolling. in real life. I think okay. that it's interesting to the point about people being having different desires in those cases. I'm the exact opposite right now, but I'm thinking about doing a fort your style because currently I basically end up with a pile of gems I'm not using because I only decorate furniture for people who I want to have happy, like the nobles or something, uh, whatever gems they like. If there's no one that likes red tourmaline, then red tourmaline just collects in a box. And it doesn't do anything. But <laughs> but I'm thinking about doing a fort where I decorate every single produced good. Every yeah. single table, chair, every pot, every thing. Just every single wheelbarrow, barrow, everything gets mm-hmm. decorated. And you know you can set up your stockpiles such that the <laughs> stockpiles that you actually pull from are only holding things that have been decorated with gems. Sounds like yeah. it's going to be like That's Liberace. True. Do you remember that guy from, I think, like the 70s <laughs> or the 80s? He was like the guy that was like all into gemstones on everything. It was pretty It's, it's going to be a Fabergé <laughs> egg of a fortress. Yes. Yes, yes. Uh, just imagine it. You know, the wealth, the power. You come in as a human adventurer with a spear that is made of like whatever, bronze and or whatever. you steal everything. And you come into a tavern and it's cluttered in massive gemstones. That's... Mwah. Love it. Do you remember the the beautiful uh, shotgun minecart shotgun? Yes. Um, m- mechanism. I think gems carved into certain. Mm. Uh, yes, shapes. Nathan from Australia. Nathan. Nathan, Nathan from Australia. From, from from Australia. Yeah, I think this is. Shout out to Nate. Hi, Nate. And that was the most amazing. Yeah, uh, the most amazing dwarven engineering. And I think this is a perfect use for gems. Think about the shrapnel what? quality no. of some of these gems, especially diamonds. They're they're really, you know, they're known for their uh, their hardness, and so I, I feel like they'd be great shrapnel. Uh, but they're not shatterproof, though. Diamonds are well, not shatterproof. All the better. You know. No, are you insane? <laughs> yes, Roland's going to be out on the field picking rubies out of bloodied <laughs> corpses and <laughs> putting them back in the chairs and the yeah, I would tables. <laughs> Yeah, all I'm saying is if you want gems, we've got so many. I'm just going to start using them as... Uh... You can send all of your gems to me. I, I would, <laughs> if this was a multiplayer game, I would just buy gems from everybody. Yeah, what like, about the... Put more the, on the it. Door Fortress Global MMO. Yeah. Oh, that would be terrifying. I would never step outside again. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be one of those where you would have to... God, love you. I mean, some of the people we've had on this podcast would just melt us. Like, this is terrifying. Let's not do this. I don't want. We were these, talking about those. I don't want this stuff turned against us, guys. We can't do multiplayer. <laughs> we were talking about those migration waves, and uh, my population jumped high. But you know, I see a pattern here. So I'm getting a migration wave every season except for winter, without fail. Every season that I've I've had a migration wave except for winter. Is that just the way it is, or is that often? I haven't noticed that being the way it is, but I also haven't been paying attention. I've got dwarf therapist up, so um, 
summer of the year five, autumn of the year five, spring of the year six, summer of the year six, autumn of the year six, spring of the year seven, summer of the year seven, and uh, autumn of the year seven just started. So every season except for winter has bring, brought me a, a migration wave. One of them was two, but other than that, they have all been, the least has been nine, the most was 20. The wiki is saying that there is never a migration in the first winter, but it does not mention a single other point about winter. Hmm. Oh. I mean, it oh. just I, I used a search for winter. I didn't find any other results. That's all. As this fortress unfolds, I, I might come back and keep an eye on that. But but yeah, my biggest migration wave, I was wanting to check to see if I had a migration wave of 22. Uh, no, I've got uh, one of, t- of uh, 15 and one of 20 are my largest two. Most of them, are, well, I've got a 10, a 9, uh, another 9, a 7. Well, the wiki is also telling me that there's a maximum size of 10. And uh, I'm just going to have to say that that's uh, straight up BS, Wiki. That's, yeah, no. Yeah, we need to. Oh, it is a Wiki. We can edit that. Click edit. Yeah, I've <laughs> Dude, already yeah. edited something. Yeah, I'll, I'll consider that later. But after the whole food <laughs> calculation fiasco, I'm not. Oh, man. I don't know if I'm ready again. <laughs> I had to recalculate and test to confirm the actual average output of legendary plus five farmers on uh, crop yields. Well, you don't expect a wiki to actually have real valid information. (laughs) Maybe that's my mistake all along. Wait, this is Dwarf Force Wiki, not Wikipedia, so never mind. Tens of us have been (laughs) updating that thing. We're going to get fired from Dwarf Fortress if we keep this up. It's time now for Memorial Gardens. Presented by Brandon Poole, attending administrator of Ivory Channel's Memorial Hall. Ivory Channel's bids a fond farewell to Thob Israf Sazir, who died of thirst in the year six. Thob was a lover of bucklers. An exceptional schist memorial was placed in memory of Erish Sikmugnish. Erish starved to death in the year seven. Memorial Gardens is presented as needed as a service of Ivory Channel's Memorial Hall. Brandon Poole, attending administrator. Heinem Rash. But you know what the wiki's really useful for? Figuring out advanced world generation. Well, that's funny you should mention that. We were wondering about advanced world generation. How does that work for you? How's it going? How many advanced worlds have you generated? Uh, Well, how many advanced worlds have I generated? Probably the last 10 that I've done have been advanced. Okay. Um, (laughs) How many? How many you specify that? (laughs) How is it? Well, I mean, around a 10. How is it going? Uh, Maybe not well. I've been running into some bugs. However, I am investigating whether or not the bugs are coming from conflicts with my tile set, uh, raws that are being imported and the raws that are meant to be in the game, or if it's some other issue like uh, the Linux repo 
maintainers having a bad set of raws or something. Or it could be that world generation is bugged because people have had this problem on Windows and in the past, uh, some of my bugs that have been occurring. And I think it could be advanced worlds generated at large sizes are causing like memory overflows, like the lists for things get too long and it's causing bugs. But, you know, besides that, world generation goes fine. Like I'm able Mm -hmm. to make what I want to make out of it, assuming it'll run. Okay, that's interesting. I get a lot of, um, nope, sorry, that didn't work. Or I end up with something that isn't what I wanted. Um, oh, yeah, me, crashes. Yeah, or crashes. Yeah, I, I definitely don't set out hoping that it will crash. But yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a little tricky. So what, what do you, where do you think we should start? How do we want to talk about this? For someone who's never actually done the advanced world generation, and some of our listeners, I'm sure, have not, uh, what is the draw of using the design new world with advanced parameters uh, feature? Why would you want to do that instead of just creating a new world with the basics that, uh, that, that they provide in the regular world creation? Well, for me, it's... I like to do a light touch because the draw for me is kind of the the light touch results. So I like to add more good to the world because evil grows over time. So if you have a long history, then you're going to end up with a massive amount of evil in the world and not a lot of good places to settle down and have that like kind of good versus evil sort of setting. And also it's kind of cool, the stuff you can get with uh, good biomes. Also, you can eliminate this is a big one. You can eliminate a lot of the area that most players would never settle that normally takes up large swaths of land, such as deserts or, you know, polar, like frigid polar wastelands, stuff like that. You can you can kind of push those away and get more playable area. So then you have more opportunities for finding your set of resources you want, say a waterfall with metals or something like that, in also a livable location right i could see that you could have a small map that has the same amount of embarkable tiles on it that a larger map has without taking up the the processor uh, that a large map does yeah and the changes for it are very simple there's there's very simple lines in there like rainfall uh my last world that i generated and these are worlds that don't go through a lot of uh failures they don't do a lot of rejects maybe 30 or 100 rejected worlds before it you know gives you one i just upped the minimum rainfall to five and reduced the maximum rainfall down to 90 because that eliminated totally soaked swampland where it never stops raining and it eliminated absolutely parched desert wastelands where it literally never rains You do have to change a couple other numbers. There are some region counts that the game wants to hit in order to accept a world, and you have to reduce those if you're eliminating those biomes. So, for example, I increased the minimum rainfall to five just to get a little trickle, a little sprinkle of rain, even on the driest areas. And then you have to go to your deserts, uh, expected square count for your deserts, and or minimum, rather, I think is how it phrases it in the file. And decrease that because you're not going to get that much desert anymore. Hmm. I've been trying to build a world that's big, but where all of the land masses are connected in some way so that you could actually cross from, you know, like one continent to another since we don't have boats. I I think that that's kind of neat, but it's also pretty darn tricky. 
to get something reliably out the door. Yeah, I've I found that perhaps unexpectedly, the hardest thing to get right in advanced world generation is the most basic part of the generation of the world, which is just where is land and where is sea? Because the game either gives you its default algorithm where it sort of places the sorts of continents we all know and love, uh, which are usually like a couple connected and maybe one is separate or something, or maybe they're all connected as one Pangea. Or you can use the grids in advanced world generation. But the grids, in my opinion, no matter how much I played with them, the world just felt not natural looking. It didn't feel, it just felt grid-like, you know? And if you make it so broad that it can't register as grid in your mind, then you have just like one landmass. So it just didn't, you know, it didn't satisfy what I was looking for. Hmm. But there's a whole lot of stuff you can do with advanced world generation, even as little as making a static seed so you can regenerate your world if you lose it. I mean, that's that's a perfectly valid reason to use advanced world generation on its own. You can totally re-replicate a world you used to have. All you have to know are the seeds and the settings. Oh, that's cool. That's what I was monkeying with uh, as you were speaking about that. If you replicate all four of those seeds, the there's looks like there's seed, history seed, name seed, and creature seed. If you replicate those four, it will generate the same world as it is it uh, for each time. It has to have all the settings the same too. So you're going to want to look at your yeah. world gen file that gets saved in the same place as your world history and your world map.bmp. Uh, you know, you'll get a world parameters file. Okay. But I mean, obviously, that might not work across versions for obvious reasons, but uh, hmm. it's still very useful because another thing with the seeds, and this is just this is before you even modify a world where it's still talking default, you still have these use cases, uh, you could generate a world and it could be called something really dumb. And maybe the civilizations are called something really dumb. Like you've got like the the story of axles is the name of your civilization or something ridiculous. And you're like, that's stupid. I just want a different civilization name. Well, you just change the name seed. Uh, and then uh, you can like re-roll the names. Now, it doesn't necessarily work 100% because if you like the history seed is going to change a lot more than that. The creature seed is going to play into things too differently. But the creature seed, I think, is another one that's a little more specific. If, say, you don't have the creatures you want in a certain area, then maybe that can help get those creatures there for you. But I think the creature seed changing it would change more things. But, you know, you can, like, change one of the seeds and just be like, I like the shape of the world. I like the creatures that are in it. But the names are stupid. So I'm going to change the names up. <laughs> Fair enough. Hmm. I think I ran Advanced World Gen, like, twice. Uh, and one time I was just trying a few things out. Actually, I tried to make a world to direct, like, a D&D &D campaign in it. Um, that worked somewhat, but I ultimately went back and just did it with the a, with a name files, as you said. Um and the other was I wanted to try and make the worst world possible as in like completely overrun with the monsters and evil. I made a pocket world so that the evil can spread very easily and the monsters don't have to go too far. 
and I let it run, uh, I think, a thousand years, and nothing was alive anymore. Nothing. Absolutely everything was dead. And uh, uh, only a few forgotten beasts here and there, and uh, like two, three necromancers with millions of undead had survived. And I was like, hmm, I kind of imagined this to be more fun. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's good uh, to know. It can come up with some strange results sometimes, for sure. Mm, yeah. Another thing that advanced world generation can do on a more practical and less artistic stage is you can change your site caps and your population cap, and you can get a, a large world that doesn't have as much history per year. So I like to do in a large world, I will do 26 civilizations as opposed to like the 48 or whatever it is, because I'm not, no one's going to keep track of eight different like elf, elven civilizations. You know, that's right. just not going to do it. No one cares about the seventh and eighth elven civilization. You just want like a few of each maybe, or maybe you just want one. So you could just have five civilizations because you got to include kobolds in there too. And then you oh, can yeah. turn the civilization population way down and you can have this large world. And although the population will grow above that number, uh, after the civilizations are established, it will restrict the total population during generation to, say, 10,000 people, which is substantially less than your civilization would have had if you went by default. And, you know, that, that affects how much of everything else is generated. That affects your artifacts, your books, stuff like that. And then, you know, the game world gen goes faster and history files become smaller. I'm looking at a at a map of on the Dwarf Fortress wiki here of someone who generated a a map with a particular uh, uh, elevation mesh. So it also sh- kind of lets you know it gives you insight into the algorithms that they're using to create the the worlds because the way the different parameters change the shape of the land masses that are in the that are in the generated world. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Those are two ways. There's two ways to do it. You can use their mesh grids, uh, which is what I was talking about before, not coming out looking very natural unless it's Mm -hmm. super, super broad. Like I'm talking like a mesh grid of four by four. You can use those or you can leave those unused and you can just change your elevation parameters and say, I want the elevation to vary more drastically or less drastically between this minimum and that maximum. And those parameters, which are earlier in the file or earlier in the interface, are going to follow the same algorithm as before, uh, the, the original algorithm that's used by default. They're just going to tweak where the game you know, what what the game allows itself to get away with during elevation randomizing. Mm-hmm. Or you could do the mesh thing, and the mesh thing gives you fine-grained control. I just don't feel like it comes out very natural. Hmm. doesn't, but it looks very video gamey. Video gamey. If you don't care about your world map and you just want your embark to be what you want your embark to be, then advanced world generation is for you because you can do some crazy stuff to a world. You can make hundreds of volcanoes. If you want a volcano embark on a waterfall, you can just drench that world with rain. You can load it up with volcanism and you could just see the magma spill from the earth and the water pour from the skies and surely you'll find something that you need and your your world map will look ridiculous but <laughs> your 
your fort will be what you want. It sounds like a science fiction setting. Yeah, absolutely. I know that you can take away aquifers in uh in your settings with a. You can take away a lot of stuff. You can take away necromancy. Not even just necromancy in general. You can take away specifically lieutenants. You can take away specifically necromancer summons, which I'm not sure exactly how that works, but judging judging by the other tags it accompanies, I imagine that just makes necromancers unable to summon things where they are. Like they won't summon undead. They will create ghouls. They'll create lieutenants and experiments, but they won't raise the dead, which for some people might be awesome because you can still get, uh, currently I have Dong the Human Snatcher something corpse. He's an undead (laughs) necromancer experiment snatcher. And he likes to visit my tavern and hang out and have a beer every now and then. So, (laughs) you know. Okay. Does he pay? Uh, you know, I, I don't watch him that carefully and maybe I should. (laughs) He's a snatcher. It's right there. I also have a goblin criminal visiting at the moment. His, his title is goblin criminal. So I'm not sure if I should arrest him. (laughs) I've had those guys before. One of them was really nice and he stayed around and he like, I don't know. He was like picking up stuff in the fortress and he was like really nice. And I don't know. I just feel like (laughs) I had one and I think that he was given the, you know, I think he he just somehow got viewed by society as as the as the wrong thing because it's hard growing up as a goblin. That was my theory on him. Yeah, yeah. Like, should I send my guards in and be like, "You're under arrest," and be like, "What for?" And I'll be like, "I don't know your name tag." Like yeah, it says but- right here, you're a criminal. <laughs> I think context matters. Who called him a criminal? The goblins or or the dwarves? Because That's if true. if the goblins called him a criminal, we might actually have a lot in common. Because if he's yeah. stealing from the goblins but not from the dwarves, that's cool, man. Yeah, so one go man's and criminal. Yeah, go and profile him. What was it? Uh, uh, it what's, what was the famous quote? One man's criminal is another man's freedom fighter. Is that is that what? Is that how that went? It's very American. Rough on the edges, that one. I'm curious yeah. how uh, Roland treats his visitors. Are they um, esteemed guests or are <clears throat> they fodder and drink and, and <laughs> oh, <God>. like, <laughs> yeah. what are they to you, Roland? Chum uh, or chum? Well, his handle <laughs> ends with sadism spikes. So. Yeah. yeah, it actually does depend on which world uh, I'm, I'm playing in. Uh, my long world is, is older than the current generation, so I still have no aquifers enabled. And it, that world has... Not that many people coming into my tavern. I get like four or five. I, I do get more scholars now uh, that I have a bigger library. But not really anybody coming into my tavern. I have uh, like it's, a it's dozen. I have dozens of visitors at a time in my current fort. And it seems like the world makes a difference because some worlds oh, yeah. like no one's around yeah. and others there's everybody. And I had a werebeast problem in this world that I'm streaming right now. And so what I did was I sent the werebeast down to the cavern level, the third cavern level, and I locked everyone in there. But I also made visitor taverns in the cavern level because I had too many visitors. So what I did was I made the taverns. I put everyone on a shelter alert so they wouldn't go down there. They would stay in the Mm -hmm. fort. I waited for all of the visitors to go into the ta- into the caverns with the werebeasts. 
And then I locked them all in there and I just let carnage ensue. And I think I did that for three waves. <laughs> and uh, I have a massive pile of visitor corpses that have just been feasted upon. And eventually, though, all of the werebeasts died. So instead of this is an interesting experiment, I guess I never thought about it this way. <laughs> when put in a concentrated tavern population of visitors, mind you, not warriors, eventually the werebeasts did die. They didn't become hundreds of werebeasts, which is very interesting. Huh. But yeah, it was a, it was not the most humanitarian thing I've ever done in a fort, and I'm very curious why anyone still visits uh, Granite <laughs> yeah. Point. I feel like it's because there's no Yelp. There's no Dwarven Yelp, so they don't know. <laughs> They're in the caverns too, so you don't oh. have to walk past the body pile to get to the fort. You that know? is always one of the nicest things you can do for your establishment is if people die, not make future patrons walk past the dead. Yes. Definitely, definitely good customer service that way. Oh. Hide the corpses. So if anyone has yeah. a bakery or something. I believe that could have to do with my situation. Um, because I'm at war with uh, two towers and two goblins, uh, as well as one elven civilization. I don't think anybody comes to me because I'm at war with almost everybody. Hmm. That's funny. That That is funny. And I feel like at this point in in my understanding of how each of you play this game, I, I can fairly say in a comedic sitcom kind of voice, that's so Roland. <laughs> <laughs> that, that isn't even true. I didn't yeah. start that, by the way. Uh, the towers attacked me on their own. The elves just kind of started as well. They didn't even it, send a diplomat. Isn't I didn't it start weird? with the second goblins, though. Isn't it be. weird how the guy who loves the military so much just keeps getting in all these wars? Funny, I mean, him. I mean, <laughs> I mean hang on. Uh, if I wasn't into military, that would just be game ending. If they send like 100 goblins or like two. 100 million war animals from the elves. That, that would be just it if I wasn't into the military that much. It's true. It's true. Maybe they wouldn't be sending so many things if your military wasn't so large. Yeah, I was going to say the military industrial complex needs an enemy, man. Can't, hey, uh, I have 16 uh, military dwarves. 16. Well, That's not too much. Yeah, but you only have 20 dwarves. I have 68, I think. A lot of children. A lot of children, though. Um, but you would be surprised. I treat my visitors very well. They do usually get a background check when they arrive because I get like three per year. But I treat them very nicely. They they even have a room right next to my tavern. They can sleep there. They have their own bed. Um, can you say get... more about the background check? I'm Now I'm curious. Well, I use the... It's going to be easier with the steam release, by the way. I, I hope so. <laughs> Uh, to do background justice, checks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Justice tab, and then you can interview somebody for literally any unclosed misconduct that happened oh, in your so you're, fort. You're interviewing everyone that comes in? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I only get like three people per year, and very often my, my bridge is up so that nobody goes out and like gets Wait sad in the rain. 
How do you do that? How do you interview people without a crime? I still, I've just oh. barely touched the justice system and I don't know how oh, to do anything unless oh, there's a crime. Oh, no. just you need like a crime. Like just, yeah, you need you just, a crime. Roland has implemented the American INS. Yeah, you, you, just, keep, you just keep a crime <laughs> open and you keep it yeah. nebulous enough so it can never yeah. be solved, but you can treat everyone like a suspect. You're right. It is sort of like the INS. Yeah, it's amazing. I know exactly who did the crime as well. I know exactly who did the crime and it was me. Okay, let's have details. How okay. do you do that? Okay, listen. Um, I had a dwarf that was very unhappy in his life. And I was like, you know what? I can use this. So I made him more unhappy by getting rid of his clothing, by giving him no room, by putting him next to corpses, and then making him live in the caverns for like two years. Uh, he was not happy about that. And at some point started punching people in the tavern and like general misconduct and I have like 20 cases open because of him. Uh, since then, he has died in unforeseen circumstances. But I do have enough open cases that I can just interview everybody. And apparently, if you do make an interview with anybody, they don't ask about the specific case. They just try to gain all information, which is just amazing. So you need a... a it was was it the sheriff or the mi military commander? I don't remember. I think it was the military sheriff. Commander. I think. Nah, the, okay, the, there was a bit iffy stuff about that. But one of those two needs to have good uh, like people skills and conversation skills and stuff, and then he becomes better at like gaining information. And uh, so every time I open the bridge, which is like once or twice a year, and people file in and out. I uh, quickly write down who's coming in. And it's it's only like three, four names. Sometimes I get a busy year and it's like five people, five to six people. And uh, then I just uh, schedule interviews with the visitors that just arrived and click through them. And they don't know anything. They're just scholars and they're like oh i'm just i'm just here to read books uh please let me go yeah i don't believe you so um <laughs> it, it usually works great and i actually caught one person that came into my fortress to steal one of my artifacts and i was like you know what i i had to rifle through a million people and and do all this and like use use criminal behavior on the on poor innocent visitors but i found actually one that committed not any crime it was more of a thought crime let's be honest it hasn't happened yet but i put him in a cage and that was it wow oh my god you have implemented the ins yes. well yeah that sounds I, I really did. terrible congratulations <laughs> on an absolutely horrific system you've, you've let outdone yourself <laughs> let me get this straight roland i show up to your fort you open the bridge i come inside for the last year you've had mebzuth going insane from being tortured in a bedroom full of corpses and being locked in the cavern he punches a few people up in the tavern like a month ago I'm showing up and walking into your fort and I get stopped by like two big guys and they're like, hey, look, weird shit's been going down in here. We need to know where are you from? What are you doing here? What's going on? I don't, I don't know if I trust you, buddy. We've had like this guy beating people up. Maybe you're one of him. <laughs> um, yeah. Not only that. Yeah, I mean, it's they, dark. They not only want that. 
They also want to know, okay, could you tell me a little bit of something about your second grade teacher? Because we think that might have something to do with Urus down there who's whacking people over the head with a bottle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, you have to remember credit score? that the insane dwarf died like seven years ago. <laughs> He's already dead, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he died like seven years ago. And we still all don't the know misconduct was before I put him in, alone into the caverns so he couldn't punch anymore. Um, so it's been like eight to nine years in the game. Technically, the letter of the law here says that because we were investigating Urus 16 years ago, that means that we can interrogate you now, yeah. even though you weren't born yet whenever Urus died. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to use that as the pretense <laughs> yeah. for holding you for an indefinite amount of time in Guantanamo Bay. Yeah. I, I, I hate to make this connection. I hate to make the connection. But it's like um, <laughs> TSA. Airport security. Mm -hmm. Something happened, and suddenly we have airport security. You know, except they look at you and they're like, "Have you ever once ever had a fleeting moment in your life where you've begun to consider stealing something to the dungeon? <laughs> like, to the dungeon? <laughs> no. Yeah, I don't believe you. Okay. Um, oh also, do not ask me what happened to the cage. Uh, I don't have it. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to ask. <laughs> you look that. like a hill dwarf. <laughs> I can imagine that it. I can imagine what happened. Attention, members and guests. Bloodtoes calls all woodworkers of the Hall of Basins to the Guild Hall, the Spring of Iron. Engraved on the floor of the Spring of Iron is a masterfully designed image of Autumn Bitelabor's the Dwarf and a Schist Ring by Zasset Ducimical. Autumn Bitelabors is raising the schist ring. The artwork relates to the masterful schist ring, created by the dwarf Autumn Bitelabors for the cradled rampart at Ivory Channels in the late winter of the year 5. Contact Bloodtoes at the Spring of Iron for more information. Hey, I got a question about the world generation in that when you first open up advanced world generation. If you just pick medium region and don't make any changes to the parameters, is that is that basically accepting medium for all of the regular the regular world generation parameters? I think so, but honestly, I've never done it before. <laughs> you'd have to you'd have to generate like 5 of those worlds and maybe 5 from the regular menu and just see if they have the same kind of uh, patterns and quantities of things to yeah. figure that out. I think it is. I think it's the same. Well, here's where I'm going with that. Tony, whenever you created your really, really long world, mm -hmm. the problem with that was, is that like Nathan said earlier, evil has taken over completely oh, by a thousand years yeah. and everything is undead. So if you could only tweak the necromancers such that they aren't as effective in some reason, or maybe take the necromancers out, then maybe you could have a really long world that doesn't get, you know, destroyed by the zombie apocalypse. That sounds like a, that might, a goal worth yeah. worth pursuing. I like it. I'm I'm making some notes. I think I might try that. Yeah, yeah. You could do all sorts of stuff. I mean, you can even. It seems like um, it seems like Tarn was very on top of what people would uh, want to change in terms of what's available. So, for example, evil clouds and evil rain are an option in here too. You can change how many kinds of evil clouds and evil rain there is. And I'm sure it's because Tarn was aware that that's a massive game changer as far as how 
playable the game is going to be or how it needs to be played in an evil biome. And then also you got your necromancer things like you can disable necromancer summons and ghouls and only allow lieutenants and experiments. And you know there's not going to be that many experiments compared to what would have been ghouls and summons. Uh, or at least summons. I'm not sure ghouls exactly. Uh, so you can do all sorts of that stuff. Right now, the secret number doesn't do anything. The, there's only one secret. It's a secret of life and death. So that one's it's like a red herring because that would theoretically change how many different kinds of uh, secrets like the life and death there would be. But it makes no difference. If it's set to just one, you'll still get necromancers. But yeah, I mean, try turning off allow necromancer summons and don't turn don't change anything else. Don't even make it a random seed or don't make it a static seed or anything. Just go into advanced world gen, go to medium region, press E, scroll down to allow necromancer summons, turn it to zero, and then press escape, F6, and enter. And you're uh, making a world without necromancer summons. That's fun. Hang so. on. Oh, it's different. It's different. Can I make yeah. crime more often? Crime? Like up crime? Oh, wait, don't judge crime? Me. Yeah, crime. As in, like, I don't, people trying to steal shit. I don't... Murder people, yeah. I think crime probably is very emergent. So maybe that's really just going to be a matter of more population and maybe more evil squares or something or somehow get goblins to be more present because they're a big source of crime. But the settings don't have anything that directly influences the psychology of the population to make them more criminally, you know, you know, criminally ah, that minded. That is a shame. That is, well, we need that. We need yeah. that. Like a crime cursor, like quack, quack. more crime, less crime. <laughs> yeah. I always felt like it had to do with, yeah, I, I always felt like it was pretty random. The crime situation, like it seems very randomly generated. I didn't see anything that could tweak that, but maybe there's things that could inadvertently, like changing this could mean that, the world is more susceptible to crime or something. That might be something to play with. Another thing that I've seen a big difference between my fort, this is back when we were doing uh, Singe Metal. Uh, Roland was showing his fort at the time and he was in the caverns and his cavern layers were super tall. He had really deep caverns, like eight to 12, I think maybe even 12 to 15 tiles tall. Oh yeah, that was a and curious world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can actually, you can make that happen. Uh, you can make your cavern passages more or less open with more or less water, and you can make more or less uh, rock layers separating the caverns. So if you ever get frustrated by going into a world and you breach one cavern layer and you're like, all right, maybe I'll find some minerals or something between this one and the next one because I don't want to have to enter the caverns to get metal or something like that. But then the next cavern level immediately starts the tile below the last one. And you're like, great. So there's just like no underground except the caverns. And you can change that. You can make there be a minimum of one, five, 30 levels between each cavern level. And it's actually not just each all set at once. You can have specifically a number of levels between the the first and above ground and between the second cavern level and the first cavern level. And you can change each one of those. So that's another thing you can do with advanced world gen. If you really like the caverns, but you find it's frustrating how they're often generated, you can change that and you can make them big open expanses that are really tall or you have a lot of space between them. Interesting. 
That is oh, really cool. interesting. Well, there's a lot to play with here. Do we have it? I think World Gen, all that stuff's still going to be in the Steam release. Like, I think all they're really doing is tweaking UI pretty much, right? So th- this this content will still be relevant. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I hope so. Stuff might be so. added to it, if anything. Stuff if might any, be added sliders. to it, yeah. Yeah, yeah more sliders. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. We are coming up at the top of the hour now, so I think that we're going to wrap this up here. Thank you so much, Tekken, for joining us. It is always a blast to have you on and and tap your knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. A well, that hoot. sounded dorky. It's a hoot. God. That's that sounds dorkier. So you can use either one of those. It's been a hoot. I'd also I'd like to uh, maybe challenge uh, you guys a curiosity I've noticed in my forts before we before we end this. I'd like to maybe challenge you guys to see what your biggest dwarf in your military is, because I have a dwarf. I have several dwarves that are 120 kilos plus, which is larger than a black bear. Oh, that reminds me. It's an absolute unit. Good Lord. Yeah, I have, a, I have a dwarf. I called him Ragnar. He's the leader of my military. Absolute maniac. Have um, you guys noticed that? They get huge. Yeah, he, he is taller than a human and he's broader as well. He's massive. So check insane. out your military, post your largest military dwarf in, in your Discord, and maybe I'll put together an advanced, or a, a, what is it, arena test, and we'll, we'll fight biggest dwarves. Uh, hang on, hang on. Um, Jonathan, hello? He's not part of it. He can't hear us. That is weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Well, let's. I guess we're in the next. We're in the overtime hour. Let's go. <laughs> I don't think can we, can can uh, can Jonathan hear us? I don't think he can. No, I don't think he can. So, so for his sake, maybe we should wrap it up. That is weird. It is really weird. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. We'll we'll wrap it up for uh, Jonathan's yeah. sake here. Yeah. So yeah, it's been it's been great talking to you about uh, about uh, advanced world gen. Um, looking forward yeah. to generating and a bunch all- of other stuff. Yeah, and some military and... And CIA interrogation, yeah. Corduroys. Wait, that got some cut. Nightmare fuel about uh, how Roland manages his... Uh, you know, it's, it's like takes a darker darker uh, turn on that whole Walmart greeter thing. It's just uh, like a light passport control at the border. <laughs> guys, it's not guys, that bad. Sitcom catchphrase. You have to be... You, hey, I have to get a soundboard with a That's So Roland and a laugh track. <laughs> You got to do it. You know what? what? A soundboard is actually on my to-buy list, so I will consider that. But (laughs) it's kind of narcissistic to play that myself. But we will see. We'll just get you a leet motif, maybe with flutes or something. Mm, (laughs) Nice. (laughs) All right, then. Wonderful. Well, thanks for uh, for for joining us today. It's been a it's been a blast. Yeah, it's uh, been a while and it was fun. Yeah, next time uh, maybe we'll be able to chat about this uh, upcoming release. Or it yeah. won't be upcoming anymore. It'll be... Hopefully. Previously. Fingers crossed. <laughs> released. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Uh, you know, January. That's my guess. So. Yep. <laughs> All right. I'll see you guys next time. All right. See you later. Happy fortressing. This has been the Dwarf Fortress Roundtable Podcast. You can find all our past episodes at dfroundtable.com. Stop by and leave a message or suggestion in the comments section for this episode. While you're there, you can subscribe to Dwarf Fortress Roundtable or find us in the podcast service of your choice. You can find video content on our YouTube channel, 
And you can send us an email at urist at dfroundtable.com. That's U-R-I-S-T at dfroundtable.com. Please consider donating to the creators of Dwarf Fortress at bay12games.com. If you'd like to help support this podcast, you can find us at patreon.com slash dfroundtable. This is a conversational podcast. All craft storeship is of the highest quality.